Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Redlands campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. I don't know if you've realized this or or it's a, a bit of a distant memory or it's yet to come for you, but can I say there are things that you can't have when you're a parent. When you become a parent, there's some things you can't have. For example, you can't have nice things. You can't have nice things anymore when you become a parent. At least you can't have nice things on low shelves. And when your kids are born, they start to crawl. All those nice things that are on low shelves slowly make their way up the wardrobes and up onto mantelpieces and up high so the kids can't get to them. As the kids get older then, I found so much joy in slowly those things coming back down and getting lower and lower and lower in our house. But you can't have nice things when you're a parent. Another thing you can't have is sleep-ins. You can't have sleep-ins anymore. Or you, you can, I suppose, but you can't do it without breeding a bit of contempt in your marriage if you keep insisting on having sleep-ins. Sleep-ins are a thing of the past. And what, what, I find, what I'm finding with sleep-ins is they're really hard to get back once you've lost them because your body clock kicks in. But when you become a parent, you can't have sleep-ins anymore. I asked Brooke this question, what can't you have when you're a parent? And she said straight away without hesitation, white clothes. You can't have white clothes. I noticed Danny Bryant wearing a bright white dress as she came in. She is breaking the law of parenting right now, wearing a white dress. And I guarantee you by the time you get home, there will be something, either green or brown or yellow or something else on that beautiful white dress. You can't have white clothes when you're a parent. And I'm sure even as I'm talking about this, you've thought of about 15 different things that you had to give up when you became a parent. Some of these things you get back, by the way, when you become a grandparent. Some of the things you gave up when you were a parent, you get back when you're a grandparent. You get your nice things back. I mean, whose grandpa? I remember my grandma had heaps of nice things. I didn't didn't think they were particularly nice things, but they were behind glass cabinets, so they must have been nice things. China dolls and vases and all this sort of stuff. You can have nice things back when you're a grandparent. You can fill your house with nice things which is what a lot of grandparents do, particularly grandmothers full of expensive looking knickknacks in your house. What I enjoyed watching my sisters do was putting dibs on the different nice things that uh, my grandparents owned, which is pretty morbid when you think about it. But anyway, you get your sleep-ins back. But not not only do you get your sleep-ins back, you get to sleep in, you get to sleep all the time. You get nana naps, and I'm looking forward to this. You get dozers, you get power naps. In fact, you probably spend more time sleeping than you do awake when you're a grandparent. I can't wait for that day. And white clothes, go for it. Wear as many white clothes as you like. Just don't wear them when you're visiting your grandkids. That's the hint. But there's one thing that you can't have as a parent, and you can't have it still as a grandparent. You can't have these things. The day you become a parent to the moment you die, You can't have it. You can never have it. It's an absolute no-no. It's out of limits. You cannot have this thing. You can't have a favorite. You're not allowed. You're not allowed to have a favorite. You can't play favorites. You can't have a favorite kid. You can't have a favorite grandkid. It is not allowed. Even if you think it in your heart, you can never verbalize it. You can never make it known that you have a favorite among your family. I remember my grandfather broke this rule all the time. (laughs) He never told me directly, but I remember my mum telling me, pulling me aside one day and in a moment of wanting to encourage me or whatever, she said, you know, grandpa told me you're his favourite. 
And I was one of probably about 10 cousins, 10 of his grandkids, and it lifted me (laughs) when my mum told me that. See, my grandpa was the sort of bloke that ruled the roost. He was larger than life. He was the center of attention. He was the life of the party. He was the grandfather that all of us cousins wanted the attention of. We wanted to play with him. We wanted to be near him. We wanted to hang out with him. We wanted to be around him as much as possible when we were younger. And so all of us, but me and my cousins, we craved his attention. So that moment when my mum told me, and I was a naive 12-year-old, when I heard, You're, you've won. <laughs> you've won the favourite title. I was elated. I found it exhilarating. My grandfather thinks that of all my cousins, I'm the best. Until I found out later that he said this of all my cousins. <laughs> and it wasn't, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a case of you're all my favourite. It was like, no, you're my favourite. Now that you're not listening, you're my favourite. And, and as funny as that sounds, it, it actually became quite destructive and divisive for our family. His own insecurity to be loved, uh, that's what caused, that's what drove him to, to, to use this language to describe us, it, not directly to us, but through our parents. And it actually caused some competition and division that wasn't very healthy for our extended family. And although my family, through my grandpa, the consequences and the implications were nowhere near as intense, there was a similar situation brewing in Joseph's family. Joseph was clearly his father's favourite. We started a series uh, last week looking at the life of Joseph. Over six weeks, we're going to dig deeper into his story through the later chapters of Genesis. And last week, we, we launched this series. And today, we're looking at the next part of this, of, of Joseph's story and understanding some of the destructive forces that were at work in his family that caused division, caused destruction and tragedy. Joseph was clearly the favourite. This, this, this family that we're looking at, Joseph's family, of which he was one of the sons, a bigger family than the family we heard of before uh, with, Kathy, with Greg and Kathy. This was already a really messy family. Can you imagine this Christmas table? Okay, just as, we, as we're getting ready for Christmas, it's not that far away, but as we start thinking about planning, okay, we've got to do your family on Boxing Day, we've got to do your family on Christmas Day, all that sort of planning that goes on. Imagine this Christmas table. There's 13 kids around the table. 13 kids, 12 sons and one daughter. Like just that picture is crazy enough. We've got four kids and if we just had a Christmas table just with us, that would be intense enough. This is 13 kids. Has anyone been in a family with more than 13 kids? It's a big family. Families like that live in Toowoomba, just saying. But to, to, to get, in, get the picture of the greater complexity of this family, just, just if that's not enough, Those 13 kids were born to four different women who were all sitting at the table together. These are Jacob's wives. Two of them, that's full on, four four mothers, four women, four, four sitting around the table to all these kids. Two of them are sisters. And now we're getting weird. Now now we're getting back into Utah uh, in in the not-too-distant past. The other two women were the servants of these sisters. This is complex. Does anyone want to compare their Christmas table with this? As you get more anxious about what's coming up at Christmas time and the complexities with family, I'd take my family every day of the week over this family. Actually, my family's not that bad. I have to say that because my father-in-law is sitting in the front row. 
I particularly love Christmas Day with Brooke's family because it's just bliss. It's just awesome because of the great work he's done as a papa. <laughs> so here's the complexity. But sit, again, to add to deeper complexity and much more potential for division and feud and all that sort of thing, sitting in the highest place in the patriarch's heart as he sits there around the table, at, probably at the head of the table, looking at his massive family. And I imagine he's going, what on earth have I done? But in his heart of hearts, he looks to a particular seat where Joseph is sitting and he says, favorite. That's the son I love the most. And he didn't hold it in his heart. He was very public about it and very open about it. Everyone knew that Joseph was the favorite. This is really interesting because Jacob himself suffered the results of not being the favorite when he was a boy. He, he had a twin brother called Esau and his father loved Esau more than Jacob. So Jacob had experienced being on the other side of favoritism. And rather than saying, right, as a father, I'm going to make sure I protect my family from favoritism because I suffered the results of not being the favorite to the point where he was fearful of his brother, didn't want to go into his presence because he thought he was going to kill him. You can read about that story earlier in Genesis. It's wacky. It's weird stuff. But Jacob had been on the receiving end of not being the favorite. But rather than making his family a place where favorites didn't happen, he went harder and among all his 12 sons and his 13 kids, he made it really clear that Joseph was the favorite and naively and ignorantly allowed then the consequences of that favoritism to happen because all of the other siblings became infuriatingly jealous and envious of Joseph. The symbol of this favoritism, like if it wasn't, if it wasn't enough that everyone knew because the father loved, Jacob loved Joseph the most, they all knew that, it was, it, was, it was thrust in their faces every time Joseph went to work and put on this coat. Remember last week we talked about the fact that most scholars, which means I'm saying people smarter than me, believe the coat wasn't necessarily that that was ornate and a robe of many colours, but a robe of long sleeves, which indicated that in Jacob's favouritism for Joseph, he gave him a job of manager rather than labourer. So he was, he was pretty low down in the, in the hierarchy of the family in terms of age. But Jacob said, you're going to manage your brothers. And I'm giving you a management coat that shows that you're managing them. You're not going to be a laborer. You're going to be a manager. So to add to their disdain for Joseph, they had to do what he said because he was their boss. Which makes sense of what happens in Genesis 37 when all the brothers are off working, laboring. They're 80 kilometers from home, shepherding the sheep. And Joseph's at home managing and his father says your brothers have been gone too long go and find them manager so he puts on his management coat and goes looks for them so Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph caused significant damage and division to his family you could certainly say that Joseph's brothers were jealous of Joseph they even coveted his coat they they wanted to be the favorite they wanted to be the one with the management coat. They wanted to be the one that were the apple of their father's eye. But there was actually a deeper, more pervasive power at work in their hearts than jealousy and covetousness. A much more damaging, destructive force at work that was causing the mess in the family more than anything else. And this is a power that if we're honest and we stop to think about it, is evil at its core and yet alluring to all of us. It's the power 
of envy. Envy. Envy is not another word for jealousy. Envy is not another word for coveting. Envy is a different thing altogether. Let me give you the Google dictionary definition of envy. I don't think this definition really quite cuts it, but let me tell you anyway to make the point. So here's how the Google dictionary defines envy. A feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or luck. I don't think this definition cuts it. I don't think this definition gets to the core of what envy is and gets to the heart of the destructive power that envy can have on relationships, on communities, and even on society. Let me offer this description of envy, uh, or, or better, a, a description of an envier, the person who is, who is experiencing that envy from a theologian called John Walton, who is commenting on this very chapter of Genesis. Here's what he says. What an envier wants is not, first of all, what another has. What an envier wants is for another not to have it. To covet is to want somebody else's good so strongly that one is tempted to steal it. To envy is to resent somebody else's good so much that one is tempted to destroy it. There's more. The coveter has empty hands and wants to fill them with somebody else's goods. The envier has empty hands and therefore wants to empty the hands of the envied. Envy, moreover, carries overtones of personal resentment. An envier resents not only somebody else's blessing, but also the one who has been blessed. Envy is not just wanting someone else's stuff. That's jealousy. That's coveting. Envy actually wants to see the destruction of the person who has what we want. You can see that Joseph's brothers, if you know the story, and we heard a lot of it last week, they suffered not from jealousy or covetousness, but from envy. Tim Keller talks about envy this way. This is, this is sort of a paraphrase or a summary of what he says. Envy weeps when the other is rejoicing and rejoices when the other is weeping. With this language, we can see a direct contrast to the way of Jesus. And Jesus would say to us, and he makes possible a way for us to live where we can rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn or weep with those who weep. So envy, when it's at work in us, and I hope this morning to show you as I was shown this week as I prepared, envy is at work in us all the time. It's an instinct within us. But it's an instinct that is completely counter to the way of Jesus. And I want to land on a place of great hope of how we can deal, how we can remedy, how we can cure envy before it destroys us, destroys the people around us and potentially the communities and society. So let's look at envy in Joseph's story. Let's look a bit more directly at this. We're sitting again in chapter 37. Last week we read the whole chapter. We won't do that again, but I do want to highlight parts that speak more clearly of the envy that is at work in this story. But you could say, you could say that the whole of Joseph's story from beginning to end, the, the, the common thread through it all is envy. In fact, I would probably say an apt title for Joseph's story, like a subtitle, would be Overcoming Envy. That would be a great title for the story of Joseph, overcoming envy. But let's look at some parts of Genesis, just chapter 37. Here it is. Here's the seed of envy in, the, in a couple of verses. We have that first, uh, verses 3 and 4 of 37. Thanks, says. We got that? Yeah. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him 
and could not speak a kind word to him. What did the brothers want more than anything? I'll give you a clue. It wasn't Joseph's demise. There was something more powerful at work that the brothers wanted more than anything. They wanted their father's love. They wanted their father's approval. They wanted their father's acknowledgement, their affirmation. What they were jealous of, what they were envious of is that Joseph got it and they didn't. They saw and experienced Joseph getting far more of the father's limited love than they were getting themselves. And this is the seed of envy in our hearts. When the object of our heart is more apparent in the life of another person. Let me explain. You you have in your heart loves for things that are limited and finite. And when somebody else, and it can be someone really close to you or it can be someone far away. When they have more of the thing that you love, you will envy them. This is the seed of envy. For, for Joseph's brothers, they saw Joseph getting more of the thing they wanted and that they loved. And so they hated him. This is how it works in our hearts. What you love, what you want, if someone else gets more of that thing or what you do that gives you purpose, if someone else gets recognition for doing it better than you, this is where envy starts to sow in our hearts. When we start to not celebrate that they're achieving something or that they have something more than what we have, not celebrating, but actually resenting them. And the reverse is also true. If they happen to lose the thing that you love, if they lose it and, and their level of that thing comes down below yours, you'll say, oh, shame. But inside you'll feel comforted. You'll feel good. You'll be rejoicing while they're weeping. Or if the thing that you do, whether it be in sports or in business or in school or whatever, if you are doing really well at this thing and it's the object of your heart, you love doing it well and someone else comes along and they do it better. Let me tell you, someone else will always come along and do it better. But when they're there and you resent the fact that they beat you, you might, you're, out of, you're out of face and everything might go, oh, awesome, how good, yeah, great. But inside you're resenting them. You're, you're, you're weeping when they're rejoicing. But then if they start to dip below you for whatever reason, and it could be tragic reasons, you go, oh, shame. But inside you feel really good because you're getting more of what you love. Like if I, if I loved fishing and fish, I would be devastated every time Ben Mackay sends me a photo of the fish he's catching. Because <laughs> no one catches fish as big as Ben. And if that, was a, if that was the object of my heart, if I was defined by my ability as a fisherman, he would be destroying me. <laughs> but think about the things that we love in life. If you love power, envy makes you resent those with more power. You rejoice when they have less. You celebrate when they have less power than you. You feel good about yourself. And when they've got more power than you, look at the way politics operates. Will you ever hear the day where the Liberal Party rejoices that the Labor Party did something good? Never, never. That day won't come. When the Labor Party do something good, the Liberal Party resent them and vice versa. If the Labor Party do something bad, well, opportunity beckons. We will slam them down and we will rejoice because maybe at the next election we'll get into power. Our government and our politics run off envy. And nobody likes politics these days, right? It's envy at work. Sadly, churches operate like this as well. I know because I'm a pastor. 
you know, and particularly power in churches. The people with the power in churches like having that power. And they particularly, the, the reveal of their love for it is revealed when their power is taken off them and given to somebody else. And this doesn't just happen in churches, it happens in community groups and other places where people are elected to power. If you love money, if you love money, envy makes you resent those with more. If you're in business, if you're in stockbroking, if you're in real estate, you will envy the success of others who make more money than you. You resent them. And not only will you resent them if they've got more, you'll celebrate when they have less. If money is the thing you love. If you love your talent that gives you purpose, you won't cope with someone more talented, whether it be in sport or in the arts or academia. I have a friend who works at uh, University of Southern Queensland in Toowoomba, and he told me the arguments and the tension and the fighting and all this sort of thing that happens when names go on a research paper about whose name is first. That's a really important thing in academia. Some of you are nodding. Because you envy the person at the front. And, and there will be, I've, I, he was telling me stories of how it gets really tense and frustrating and people fight and bicker. And I reckon it's fueled by envy. Do you love approval? Do you love being acknowledged and being approved envy will make you resent those who are acclaimed more than you and delight when you get acclaimed from others I remember sitting in a members meeting in church in Toowoomba and we'd done a whole lot of work uh, casting vision for the future and a part of that was the property the vision for our property and our buildings and we had this guy who was a gun volunteer he did so much work and he led sort of that that part of the vision we had the big vision and then where does our property and our building sit within that bigger vision and he was presenting at a members meeting and he did a fantastic job presenting the future of where we were going and someone got up at the end and said, I want to move a motion of thanks to this guy. I won't name him. Um, I want to move a motion of thanks to this guy because he's done a fantastic job. He's done brilliant work leading the team, consulted well. And I, I want to move a motion. Weird things happen in Baptist members meetings. You have to move a motion to thank someone. But anyway, I had a lot of motions moved in members meetings, by the way. Um, just not those kind of motions. But anyway, it moved a motion that a round of applause be given to this guy. It was, it was, it was great, except I was sitting there sulking. I was envious of, because I'm going, he wouldn't have had the job if I didn't give it to him. I'm the senior pastor. He, he wouldn't be doing that if not for the bigger vision. And, you know, I did a lot of work with him as well. Like, he's getting all this acclaim and all this approval. What about me? Where's my acclaim? Where's my approval? See, I love the approval. I love the applause at that, at that point. And, and maybe there's still envy at work in me in that regard. But in this moment, it was revealed pretty tragically and dramatically. I couldn't enjoy this guy's success because I was sulking and I was envious of it. See, what you love most in life, the thing you love the most in life, that thing will control your heart. And most of those things, in fact, all but one thing that I'll get to at the end, all but one thing that can be the object of your heart, everything except for that one thing is limited and finite. It runs out. And so there's a limited amount for everybody. There's a limited amount of spots on the team. There's limited amounts of positions in the business or the, or, the, or the organization you work for. There's a limited amount of money in the world. It's all limited and finite. And so there are gonna be people who get more of it than you do. And if you love those things more, the things you love the most, they control your heart and they breed envy in us when other people are getting what we want. When you see others having more of it than you, envy will destroy you and it will destroy your relationship with them if you let it breed. 
if it doesn't cause you to destroy them first. Envy causes you to weep when others rejoice and rejoice when others weep. And here's the real tragedy. This envy and the people that we envy can often be people who are really close to us. They can be other family members, they can be friends, they can be co-workers, people that we're meant to do life with. They can be people in the church, people who we're meant to do life with. When we envy them, we start to erode the relationship. If you've ever been to life group one night, maybe it was a life group meeting in someone's brand new house and you were like in there with your, with your partner or your family, you were oh, this is beautiful. And then you got in the car and you started with your, with your partner sort of criticizing and critiquing and all that sort of thing. That's envy. It's envy. I mean, I, I see it between my kids. I see envy at work every day. I tell Job to get off his computer, stop playing the computer. First thing he does is looks around the house and see what his brother and sister are doing. How come Fletcher gets to keep playing? And I'm going to go and destroy him. Fletcher, get off your, get off your phone. I do, Fletcher doesn't have a phone. Get off your iPad. Now, it's not enough for him to just be, okay, that's me and whatever else. He has to envy his brothers and sister. This is at work everywhere. I don't need to tell you how destructive this can be on communities, on society generally. Let's look, jump back into the story and look at verses 19 and 20. Here comes that dreamer. So this is Joseph is on his way out with his coat on looking for his brothers. When they see him coming, they say, here comes that dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. That is brutal. That is a massive overreaction. But this is where envy leads us. This is envy at its worst. This is like murder. This, this, is, this is murder like when Cain murdered Abel. Why? Because he was envious of him. It wasn't just enough for him to go away and think of a way to get in favor with God who didn't like his offering but liked his brothers better. He had to go and destroy the person who got the approval. He had to go and kill him. And this is what Joseph's brothers are doing now. Fully formed and fruited envy seeks to murder the person envied, taking them out of the picture completely. I don't think anyone in here is about to commit murder, but that's the trajectory. Fully fruited, fully evolved envy leads us down that path. And this is, this is where envy is different from other sins. It's actually quite notably different. With, with other sins like anger and lust and greed, there's like this initial payoff of joy. Like if we feed our anger, there's a sense of justification, a sense of righteousness when we get angry at something. And that, that's a bit of, a bit of an emotional payoff. Lust, when we feed our lust, there's initially this little burst of joy, this little burst of a thrill. When we feed our greed, there, there might be a longer feeling of satisfaction and whatever. It's all fleeting, we know that, but there is a little payoff. With envy, there is no payoff. Envy will always rob us of joy. Envy will always breed this horrible thing in our hearts that makes us want to destroy the person envied. And it only leads us, if we act on that, to deeper emptiness and deeper despair. And yet, this is the, this is the striking thing about it. We all suffer from this. We all suffer from envy. We may deal okay with greed. We may deal okay with others. But envy, I just see it everywhere now that my eyes are open. And first of all, I see it when I look in the mirror.
before I go pointing the finger at other people when it comes to envy, because that can be the temptation here. Yeah, there's some, some pe- Sam, there's some people in the room who need to hear this. <laughs> before I go pointing the finger at my kids as an easy target, before I go pointing the finger at other people, I need to look at myself and see how much envy is at work in me. I remember when my sister got a new Jeep Wrangler. This is when Brooke and I were driving around in a crappy Nissan Pulsar. I remember well a holiday down the Gold Coast where my sister had parked it outside of my dad's hotel where he was staying and this brand new, I don't, it wasn't brand new but it was new enough, uh, black Jeep Wrangler it looked really nice. And it wasn't just enough that she had a new car, it was my fact, the fact that my dad came and looked at it and went, wow, what a nice car. He got in it, he looked around it and he was like, this is a really nice car. And I'm like, they're smiling but inside I am filled with envy. It wasn't just that I was jealous, it was that I didn't want her to have it. I felt this when I reflect on it, understanding envy as I prepared, that's what I felt. I wasn't able to rejoice in her new car, but resented that she had something that I didn't, and to add salt to the wound, my dad affirmed her for it. So she had a nice new car, and she had my dad's approval. Two things I wanted. But hey, being a Jeep, it didn't take long for this to reverse. (laughs) We might need to edit that from the recording, because I don't want to get an email from Jeep. But anyway... It wasn't long before it started having engine troubles. (laughs) But envy was at work again because, you know, I didn't feel bad for her. I felt comforted. I felt good. That nice day serves you right. Stupid car. Stupid thing you did. But I feel good now because the Nissan Pulsar just keeps on going. (laughs) Until it didn't. (laughs) I wept when she was rejoicing and I rejoiced when she was weeping. And this is my sister. It's my younger sister who I love. Envy was at work. I was a long way off murdering her, by the way, in case you're worried. But envy can lead to that sort of thing growing if you fuel that and you let it breed. What's the next thing that you're going to envy? What's the next thing? What's the next thing until you can no longer be in relationship with that person because so much of the love has been eroded by envy. This is a deeper example for me. I envy and still struggle with this, hopefully less than I used to. I struggle with the success of other churches and the success of other preachers. I hear other people preach and I wanna be better than them. I wanna be a better pastor. I wanna be a better leader. I wanna lead a more successful church. There would be some sixth sense of comfort if I looked around at all the attendants of the churches in the Redlands and we were on top. Envy would start to breed in me and it'd be like, we are the best church. And I would be rejoicing while they're all weeping at not being the best. And when I hear a sermon, I try to think, okay, and, and I, there's, there's a thing within me that wants to say to Brooke, but I'm a better preacher, right? Than that person. Is it, that's envy. Celebrating the decline of other churches. How sick is that? Celebrating when someone stuffs up a preach because I didn't myself. On the reverse side, feeling in the gutter when I stuff things up or when my attendance is lower or whatever, this stuff is creeping. It's knocking at the door of my heart all the time and I have to fend it off. This resentment, it it, it grows in us and it leads to conversations about others that we, that we envy. It, it leads to conversations maybe as a, as a married couple or as friends start talking about how others are wasting their money 
or how they've made an unwise purchase. So when you hear about them losing their passports and staying in a dodgy Airbnb doing a holiday that we wish we were on, you don't feel sorry for them. You feel happy because their holiday stuffed up. Yeah, good. Guy didn't get to go. They got to go and they're in a dodgy Airbnb. I rejoice in that while they're weeping on the other side of the world. No one is saying that you want to murder them. Don't you see how this can lead us down that path? I'll give you a great example of how, it's not a great example, it's a tragic example of how envy, fully fledged, fully fruited, can lead to murder in our time. Domestic violence is abhorrent. We have far too many headlines of beaten and murdered partners. Don't you understand that this is fully grown envy? It's full control over the partner, usually the man to the woman, but it does happen in reverse as well. You are mine. And if you even think about leaving me, I will kill you. That's envy. I, I cannot handle you being with someone else. I cannot handle you having a life outside of me. And rather, rather than walking away and just getting on with life, I will actually kill you and maybe even kill myself because I cannot handle it. This is fully blown envy, fully matured, fully fruited envy, killing the person who we would envy. And this is where envy has arrived for some of Joseph's brothers. They took his robe, says verse 31, and it's interesting that this is the symbol. This is the symbol of the favoritism that the father gave to Joseph. They took this symbol and they tore it up. They could not handle it anymore. They couldn't handle this symbol that they that was on Joseph all the time of the good thing that he had, the favoritism he had on the father. And they symbolically, as well as with a plan, they poured blood all over it and they destroyed this symbol that represented the favoritism. And in this display of destruction, their envy had fully matured. Fully matured. Where do we go? How do we deal with envy? How do we get away from it? How do we stop allowing envy to breed in our hearts and take control of us and destroy us and destroy our relationships? Well, the first thing is rather than dealing with envy in someone else, we need to do what that famous theologian and artist said. We need to start with the man in the mirror. I'm gonna ask him to make a change. We need to deal with envy within ourselves before we start looking at envy in other people. And there's two things, two things. And these two things will guarantee These are guaranteed ways to remedy envy, if we can do them. Guaranteed to remedy it. The first thing we can do is look up to God's love. And the second thing we can do is look forward to God's future. Look up to God's love. Envy is caused by the object of our heart and other people getting more or doing better at the thing that is in our heart. So what do we do to deal with that envy is we replace that thing with a greater love. We replace that object that we love that is finite and limited with something that is infinite and unlimited, that never ends, never runs out. Your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. So God's love, there is more than enough for everybody because it's never ending, it has no limit. It's never a use by date. It's never like God goes, well, I'm all out of love. I've got nothing left. Sorry for those who were waiting. That's not how God operates. So when we take the object that we have in our hearts, a thing we look at and we go, that will bring me joy, that will bring me pleasure. I don't want anyone else to have that because it's mine. If we replace that with God's love that is eternal and unlimited, we will cure envy. 
We, it, envy won't have a place in our hearts because there's nothing to envy. And more than that, God's love, we're told in, in 1 Corinthians, his love does not envy. So it's not like he envies what we've got. So when he pours his love into our hearts, when that's the object of our heart, there's no need for envy because we have a beyond full measure of his love to drink from, to taste, to experience. It's not like there's a limited amount and he gives more to this person than he does to me. Everybody gets beyond a full measure. And that's the, that's the one thing I talked about before. That's the only thing that won't create envy in your heart because it's the only thing, the only love, the only object of our heart that is unlimited and infinite. We need to gaze into the love of God. We need to pray, God, fill our hearts with your love. Remind me that the thing that is the object of my heart, it's, doesn't have a, it's not in the right place. You need to be in that place. Repent, confess, and ask God who is gracious and loving to fill our hearts by his spirit with his love. That will cure envy, it's guaranteed. Joseph and his family would come to know this, by the way. Remember that title, Overcoming Envy? You'll see this as the series unfolds. Despite this horrendous and tragic chapter, God's plan and his care for his people never wavered. That's the other beautiful thing about God's love. He will not condemn us for loving other things other than him. He will not judge us and send us away from him for loving other things. He graciously says, yes, you know, while you've been off chasing that thing and envying others who get more of it or being comforted by it when they get less of it, I've been here loving you and I will continue to love you. You are my child. I am your father. Nothing can separate you from my love, but turn your head and look up and see my love and be cured of the envy that is breeding in your heart. When we look into God's perfect love and make him the object of our heart and we see his love that is full that is unearned that is unmerited that is fully given in grace and not as a reward our envy will be cured the second thing is to look forward to God's future look forward to God's future one day as we prayed about after we sang before one day all of us will be in the fullness of God's presence without sin without pain without the things of this world tugging at our hearts, without the loves uh, the ob that become the objects of our hearts, without them tempting us away from the love of God, without the voice of the enemy planted in our hearts and in our ears and in our minds, with all of that gone, in those days that are coming for all of us who believe in Jesus, when those days come, we will be fully supplied with the inheritance of Jesus. And this will be a full experience. What we, what we experience in part now, we will experience in full then. And we will have everything we could ever long for. The full inheritance, the full resources that God owns will be ours. And so, what's to envy? If you've got more than everything and the person next to you has more than everything and the person next to them has more than everything and so on for everybody who is in is in the fully, when, when the kingdom fully comes on earth, what's the envy? Nothing. So why bother giving a moment to envy now when that day is coming for all of us who love Jesus? We don't just look up to God's love, but we look forward to the future where we will receive an inheritance which is full and unlimited. There'll be nothing to envy because everybody will have beyond everything they could ever desire or imagine. 
It's a very famous parable that Jesus told. It sees a rebellious son return to the family home and to his father. And rather than stern judgment and conditional acceptance from the father, which you would probably think in this day and age would be wise parenting. Okay, he did this to me once before. You can come back, but here are the conditions. I think that's probably how we would operate. But this being a picture of the heart of God is not how God operates. There's no conditional acceptance. There's no stern judgment. There's a party. There's a party. The father organizes a party because his son who was lost is now found. But at the party and around this table, there's a really important member of the family who is missing. And it's the older brother, the older son. And when he hears what's going on, he is riddled with envy. He's riddled with envy. In fact, I think he would have lived most of his life riddled with envy. You've got, you got to wonder about the relationship between these two brothers as they live together. I would bet that when the younger brother left, envy was at play in the older brother. It would have been this mix for the older brother of resentment and comfort. I think that the, env the envy that manifested in resentment would have been he's taking a third of the inheritance and doing whatever he wants with it. That's horrendous. That's a third that I won't get. But there also would have been comfort. He's gone. Oh, he's gone. Because I, don't, I think if he hadn't have gone, I might have murdered him. That scumbag of a brother of mine. And now he's got the full attention of the father. So now, when the younger son returns and there's a flipping party for the older brother, the envy is full blown. Listen to what he says in this parable. The older brother became angry and refused to go into the party. So his father went out and pleaded with him. His father went out and pleaded with him. The father didn't go, oh, that older brother again. What am I gonna do about him? No, he went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. That is envy. That's full-blown envy. The next step is I'm gonna kill him. It's what the older brother is experiencing. I wonder if for some of us, we find ourselves in a similar place of envy today that envy's been at work. And as I've been talking about, as we've been understanding more of what envy is, that it's not simple jealousy or coveting. It's a lot deeper than that. We've become aware of the envy that's in our hearts. We've become aware of it manifesting in us. And on a scale, it may have breeded, again, I'm sure that no one's about to murder someone. If you are, come and see me after the service and we'll have a chat. But somewhere along that scale, you can see envy at work in your heart. You look around the people around you and you envy them, you resent them, because they're doing better or you get some sense of comfort because they're doing worse. As we become aware of the resentment in us, maybe we can position ourselves with the older brother while there's a party going on for the person that we envy. Can we imagine that our loving Father who loves us no matter what comes out of the party and stands before us, pleading with us to come in, pleading with us to join Him at the table, pleading with us to, to make possible, not that you weep 
when people rejoice and rejoice when people weep, but let me change your heart so that you weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Let me cure envy out of your heart. Come in, come in to my table, come into my home, sit at my table. Here's what the Father says to His oldest son and here's what the Father would say to us today whose hearts may be riddled or maybe on a trajectory towards fully being riddled with envy. My son or my daughter, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. You don't want for anything. You don't need for anything. You don't need to envy anyone because everything I have says an unlimited and infinite Father. Everything I have is yours. There's no need for envy. There's no need to resent anyone. There's no need to compete with anyone. The object in your heart, it doesn't need to be there. Make me the object. And you'll see again, you'll see afresh, you'll see with new eyes, everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. We had to rejoice with your brother who's rejoicing because he was dead and now he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. Get rid of envy from your heart and rejoice because we're all rejoicing and you're killing yourself being out here weeping while we're rejoicing. It's a cure for envy, whether it's small or large in our hearts and in our minds to look up and see the Father. You don't have to look up and stare into the distance. He's right here. He's right there in front of you, pleading with you. Come in, come in. Make me the object again. Make me the object of your heart. Look up and see His love. And don't you see, everything I have is yours. And a day is coming where it'll be fully be yours and you'll fully experience. You don't need to worry about what the world has to offer. I know what you need, I'll provide for you. But look to my future that I have for you. Jesus said, I go to prepare a room for you. My Father's house has many rooms and it'll be yours one day. That's how we cure envy. That's how we cure this thing that is destroying our society. This is the thing that is destroying our communities. And we can be a people counter to the way of the world when we learn through the love of the Father to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep rather than being people who rejoice when others weep and weep when others rejoice. Let me pray for us. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to connect with you. Please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know.